And what I've kind of learned, especially in this last year, while I'm raising too many humans to be the most rad big humans they possibly can be is understanding what your privilege can provide to others. And, you know, they will be kids who will have trust funds. They will be kids who will never have to pay for whatever school they want to go to or any degree they want to have. They'll pay, they'll be able to pay cash for their first house if they want. And that's kind of up to them, but they will also know the importance of fighting for individuals who don't have those abilities. They will know what my classroom looks like and what providing dignity to all humans looks like. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar, a podcast where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. I'm Sarah. And I'm Garrett. We're here to give you a space to explore your relationship with money. The guilt, stress, exhilaration, and fear. No topic is taboo. And in this episode, we explore the myth that having a large amount of money means your problems automatically go away. We sit down with Megan Gill about how having a trust fund has made her feel she's had to hide who she is and how she's overcome that shame by using money as a source of good in the world. On that note, grab a seat and get ready to go beyond the dollar. Megan Gill, welcome to Beyond the Dollar. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, I'm like super enthused. You sound it. (laughs) Well, I have to have my my special voice because I'm in my office. No, thank you so much. And so just to give people a little bit of a background, we met in Portland, Oregon about nine years ago when I was volunteering at a high school, De La Salle High School. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you remember how we met? I do. So we were in um, a CPR training and I showed up late. I was the last person and it already started and I sat down next to you and I believe we were drawing stick figures and having a full on stick figure conversation whilst training. And I think that's how we met. And I think I knew then you were my spirit animal. I would say that's that's pretty accurate from a, from a historical standpoint. <laughs> and I think what's really interesting about that, too, is saying we met and pretty much from the get-go was like, I see you, you see me, we're both ridiculous. And we had that immediate connection of like, all right, we're going to be friends. Absolutely. We established that pretty quickly. And yet, I think it took, can't even remember how many months, but there are some things that we were very open and honest about. From the get-go. And then some things that you did not want to share immediately. Oh, absolutely. Surrounding money. And that, to me, is a super interesting point to talk about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that was my first teaching job out of college. It was a very... How do you put it? I kind of felt like I had to be like a superhero at my job because... The school that I taught at, my parents were donors, some of the bigger donors at that school. And I wasn't married yet or even close to it. I was well into my partying years. And <laughs> and so I had the same exact last name, which is a pretty distinct name in Portland. And so I kind of had to walk that tightrope of, okay, so I know that I'm the child of these donors and everybody above me knows that. But then nobody who is along the same line of me as teachers or counselors or you knew 
who I was. And I really wanted to keep it that way. So I tried to be very mindful about how I presented myself, what I wore, what I carried, what I didn't carry, where I parked my car so people didn't really notice what kind of car I drove. Because I think, like I said earlier in a conversation, um, I drove the same car as the president of the school, but mine was a newer model. So um, it was really... (laughs) There were, there were things that were pretty obvious about um, maybe the amount, maybe not the amount of money that I had, but that I did have money. And then when you couple that with having donor parents, it could be blaringly obvious that maybe teaching wasn't the only thing paying the bills. So you caught me at a really unique time because not only was I forming my own identity as an educator, but as, as an adult, because I had my big kid pants on. And then as an affluent 20-something working in the private education sector. And and I was not graceful at it at all. I remember sitting in the president's office begging him never to mention my parents within the same room as me, not to invite me to any donor events because I didn't want other donors who knew my parents to recognize me um, and out me. And our development, our director of development, who knew that I was a part of the foundation that my parents ran, I was like, don't ever talk about it in front of other people. I don't want anybody to know. And and so at that point in my life, it was almost like a shame, like it was my scarlet letter that I had all of this stuff um, and it somehow invalidated my ability to be an educator. Horribly wrong. I mean, looking back, I wasn't the, the most stellar teacher in my first year teaching. I don't know how that's not possible, but um, <laughs> I definitely was doing what I should have been doing. And I, I didn't, I shouldn't have had any insecurities about it. I just, growing up in a completely different world than I was working, and then hearing the opinions of those who come from my world, it really kind of gives you anxiety about what your place is. So yeah, you, you caught me during a time when I was very ungracefully trying to, to figure out how to do all of those things. Can we just back up a little bit and talk about, I guess, your world versus the world of, I don't want to say middle class, but maybe somebody who who's making 40 grand like I was as a teacher. Can yeah. Just describe a little bit. I don't want to say your childhood, but can you just describe a little bit about what your parents were like, what the family, you know, the, the money oh, dynamic and all that? Well, so I can't say that I always had money. When I was younger, we lived in Southern, or not in Southern California, but in California. And we had this tiny old ranch home with like a broke down barn in the back. Um, it was nothing spectacular. It, now it'd probably go for millions of dollars because California, but Back then, it was the smallest house in the neighborhood. And my dad worked for a big tech company and got a promotion and moved us up to Oregon where our lives completely changed. So we went from living in this small, semi, I would say lower middle class home to the most affluent neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. And at the time, I didn't know that. I was just this like six-year-old kid who's like, dude, I have a yard. I have my own bedroom people drive like new cars. This is so cool. Um, But it went from having one trip to Ross a year to get school clothes to being able to get whatever I needed whenever I needed it. And it wasn't until I got older when I was in middle school and my dad retired, which is really young to retire, that I understood the scope of what my dad had become. And he became one of the top three executives at that tech company. And so people around me knew that. But I had been kind of protected from that, even though 
I went to a really nice private school. My parents had hobby cars. I got to go and get the early tickets to all of the concerts that all my friends wanted to go to. And I just thought, oh, well, this is maybe what all kids do. Because, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you don't really get what else happens. So when I, I think when I got into middle, late middle school, early high school, it became kind of grossly apparent that maybe I had more things than the average kid kid um, when your dad doesn't work and he's decided I think I'm going to take up golfing full-time um, <laughs> and I got I, I would talk about trips that I was taking with him and students were like wow I've only ever dreamed of going to Europe and you got to ride in first class because I'm talking about caviar because doesn't everybody fly first class and have caviar but no and then I started sounding like a real snob. Um, and so I had to figure out now that my reality was not everybody else's reality, but they can't really share it that way. And my parents didn't teach me that. They taught me, I think, humility to an extent, but they didn't explain to me ever what we had and how it made us different than others. And so, so yeah, I think my childhood was very secluded in this little bubble. I lived just on the board. Well, I lived in Dunthorpe, which was the hoity-toity neighborhood in Portland. Um, it still is. I live there now. <laughs> and it borders on um, a smaller suburb of Portland, which is known for being full of affluent families. Um, and so that was my everyday world. And so, you know, I'd see all the problems that happened in there. But when, when I went to high school, it was those same communities that went to the same high school. So everybody... I saw I had the same kind of life that I did, and so it didn't seem so weird. And then I transferred high schools to across town where kids who were in poverty went to that school, ethnic minorities ah, went to that school. I met like the first, my first black person at that school, and that sounds awful, but that was my world. It was a bunch of rich white kids, and I was that ambiguously brown, but white passing rich white kid. And so then you go to this other school where people look different from you. And some of them are single moms on welfare trying to put their kid through private school. And I'd never even conceptualized that before. And then I really started to realize, these are like my stages of realizing like, oh, dude, I'm so different. I, I love that. I thank you, by the way, for just being so honest about it. Yeah. I, I'm just remembering... I mean, I don't have millions of dollars in the bank, but I can relate to – so when I lived in China, you know, not that the listeners can see, but I am Asian. So <laughs> – but but it, it made for a very interesting dynamic, I guess you can say, is was when I was over there, I was mistaken for a local dozens of times. And so the school I had worked at had also local – uh, staff members, but I was seen as a foreign staff member. And it was really strange because they couldn't accept me as someone who was foreign. And so therefore, there was a lot of questions that were asked of me about how were you allowed to make this much money? So mm -hmm. in full disclosure, I was making 40 grand, which in the US isn't necessarily a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. But in China, it was, right? So some of them were making $600 a month and I was making, you know, three, 4,000. And I remember this feeling of guilt, thinking, oh, what if my parents did not move to North America? W would I be in the same situation as them? And it was that feeling of like, do I deserve all of the things that I've done in my life up mm -hmm. until this point? Is the only difference between me and this local staff member my degree? And I, I don't know, did you feel that when you 
started coming to realize like, oh, there are there are so many different situations outside of my my realm of existence or oh absolutely um and i think even my senior year of high school i did a full rebellion against it it, it had occurred to me that i had all of these things and i didn't have to i didn't see i didn't see my dad's struggle right i didn't understand what his compromises were um to get to where he got um sacrificing you know birthdays and holidays and things with our family but at the same time, I didn't earn any of it. So how, how is it that just on my 16th birthday, a brand new car falls into my lap? Or I get to, you know, I, I, go, I get to school and every year I get a brand new wardrobe for that school year and it wasn't a weird thing. And I felt really guilty about it. Um, and then I felt spiteful. And, and if you're familiar at all with Portland, you know that the culture of Portland is sort of like F the one percenters. And it always has been. It's gotten a lot greater, I'd say, in like the last maybe five or 10 years. But when I was in high school, even then, rich people were not looked highly upon. And I, I had such an internal struggle with having things that I hadn't worked for um, and not understanding that it was okay because somebody else, like my dad, had worked for it and it came out of love that I harbored all of these resentments and ended up meeting this guy at my high school who was this anarchist, punk rock, like hate the world type. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that he is my soulmate. And um, and in that year, I went from being pretty naturally who I was to kind of creating this alter ego of this like rich hater who I wore t- ripped up goodwill stuff. The belt I wore, I traded a diamond earring that my mom gave me for a belt with a homeless guy because I thought it was cool and it seemed like a good idea at the time. And she doesn't know this, so don't tell her. Unless she listens to the podcast. Yeah, I know. So sorry, Mary. Uh, But even though I knew it had value and it was an important thing, a thing, who cares? Because it doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter to me anymore because I'm probably much happier saving the world um, one anarchist protest at a time than, than having this stuff. And so I, yeah, I completely, I think, adjusted who I thought I was and surrounded myself with people who were like-minded to make myself feel like I fit more into the world than I actually did. One thing that's come up for me is I think societally we have this sense of if you have money, what do you have to complain about? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that outlet, so if you have money and you don't feel like you have this outlet to discuss the things that you're going through, which everybody has problems, it's just they look different for everyone. And people who live in poverty have different problems than people who have millions of dollars. But we all have problems. You know, you mentioned that you didn't know that your life was any different necessarily till you got to high school. And then Portland being this place that doesn't necessarily love the one percenters. What were some of those conversations like? How was it for you? And what were you, were your experiences when you got to that high school? And, you know, did you quickly realize, like, I can't say these things or you had to? I know that you talked about that story of rebellion mm-hmm. right, with that person, but just saying, like, how quickly, how kind of culture shock was it that you had to pull yourself into this shell, if that's an appropriate way to put it, to just save yourself from judgment ridicule judgment yeah I'll go there things. Garrett go there <laughs> um, I mean I would have to say probably within the first couple of weeks I went and observed I went and observed that high school the the second to last month of my sophomore year and I went with a, a, a young man 
who I would eventually date because I dated everybody, um, but who, who came from a similar lifestyle that I did. Uh, but he, it was really interesting because when I met him in, in middle school, he had his Abercrombie and Fitch outfit because, you know, those that was really cool back then in the 90s. Um, it's not cool anymore? I mean, now it is. It's vintage, right? Right. I was going to say. <laughs> but, you know, he had his he had his nice clothes and he was put together. And when he showed me around the high school, he was in like these ripped up kind of car, like not worn in Carhartts and like an old football t-shirt. And it was so different from the guy that I had met a few years prior. And I should have maybe taken that as a clue, but I didn't. And I showed up in my usual schmancy garb and everybody looked at me and they're like, oh, is that the rich kid who transferred from Jesuit, which was the rival school? And and, uh, like, oh, yeah, there she is. And immediately just looking at me, I looked different. So pretty soon, like the T-shirts that I wore to school across town were put into drawers and something a little more nondescript was was like my uniform. And then I didn't have like my sparkly bedazzled designer jeans. I had my less noticeable, like if you if the pockets, if you could tell how much I paid for my jeans based on the pockets, which is how you told back in the early 2000s, I made sure my pockets were covered so that people didn't know how much money my pants were. So like I, I like assumed this whole uniform like a physical outward appearance. And then um, I had to stop talking about where I lived. I never invited people to my house ever, ever actually. I think I never had people come over because I didn't want them to see where I lived because we didn't have the most ostentatious home in the neighborhood. My neighbors certainly did. So if you couldn't tell from just looking at my house, you could definitely tell by looking at where my neighbors lived that, that people there had money. Um, so I always stayed on the east side and hung out at their homes. And I'd make up excuses for why I had a nice car. I started putting stickers all over the back of my car so it looked a little more lived in. So I, had, I carried a skateboard around me with me because, you know, skaters can't be rich. And so it's sort of like I literally created this, this whole new persona just to feel like, Maybe people will leave me alone. If I play sports, we wear a uniform on game days and everybody else is wearing the uniform so I don't stick out as much. And I won't get the super nice Nikes. I'll get like the mid-range Nikes because then it doesn't look like I spent 350 bucks on a pair of shoes, which I could have. There's this term thrown around by a lot of people in the personal finance community called stealth wealth. So it's this idea of you have millions of dollars in the bank, but you don't want to look it because you don't want to have these conversations with people or you want to avoid people coming up to you and trying to befriend you because you have the money mm-hmm. um, you know all of those I guess feelings of guilt and, and paranoia I guess you can say I guess I'm just wondering it what was that how you felt when you were trying to come into your identity and as you were your first year teacher and thinking about all of that stuff yeah I think so um, I also just know through personal experience that people's relationships with you change when they find out that you have money. Whether it's they just look at you differently in terms of how you got to where you are, why you do what you do. I remember uh, a math teacher I worked with at De La Salle found out the first house that I bought was in Northeast Portland, um, but it was a turnkey home. So it didn't need a lot of work, which, uh, which means that you pay a premium for something like that. And he saw me pull into the driveway of that house. And the next day he said, oh, wow, how did you afford a house like that on a teacher's salary? And I said, well, you know, we all make money. And just kind of left it at that. And then the next question he asked was, is teaching a hobby? 
And I didn't know what to say. And I said, it's not for me. Is it for you? And then he kind of looked at me like, okay, maybe I, I st- overstepped, but that's always stuck with me. I mean, that was now what, oh, that was before you, Garrett. So that was 10 years ago. I'm sitting in front of a peer and he's asking me, is teaching a hobby for you? And so I think when that question was asked, I immediately was like, okay, now I've got to go back into my shell. I've let people know too much. Uh, now I'm invalidating myself because where I come from. And, and frankly, I mean, in teaching, people ask questions and, they, and you, know, you, you sort of create a tribe because you're in the struggle together and you get to know each other because you spend so much time doing professional development or sharing classrooms or working together in like a learning community that you feel like you start to get to know them as almost like a business family. And then all of a sudden those walls of like decorum come down and the inappropriate questions come out. And because I don't think that's a really appropriate question to ask somebody, um, is your vocation your hobby? Because it wouldn't be for anybody else. Why is it okay to ask me that question? And so, yeah, I think it makes you really self, it made me at least very self-conscious about what I wore, how I acted. I had a Louis Vuitton messenger bag when I started. That was, that was an odd choice. And, um, <laughs> and that retired the next week because, because it was sort of my like, hello, look at me, I'm fabulous, without me realizing it because it was what my, it was a brand that I'd seen everywhere. And a Jansport backpack took its place. And teaching is such an interesting profession because it's one where, from my experience, people commiserate with the lack of money that they make. Oh, yeah. And it's that struggle. They're like, I am saving the world. To This is going to be a gross blanket statement, <laughs> but like, I'm doing all of this good. I'm trying to help educate the future generation, and I am not getting the respect I want from administration. I'm not getting the pay. How the hell am I going to live in Portland on like $30,000 a mm-hmm. year as a new teacher? And so there's so much camaraderie that that bond that comes from that struggle. And that's just naturally part of the conversation. And so if that's how people bond, yeah, I can imagine that's incredibly difficult for you if you can't be a part of that conversation. Oh, absolutely. And then when you try to enter that conversation because people bring you into it, you almost feel like you have to lie to commiserate in some sort of way. I feel like society in general, and I mean, our... Being a teacher is a very important profession, and I'm very proud to be a teacher, but I feel like society likes to fuel the, oh, you're martyrs. Like, how many cents an hour do you get being a teacher because work happens after the school hours? And yeah, you get summers off, but aren't you planning, and you've got all of these things that you're doing, so you're really not making nearly enough. I don't know how you do it. And then teachers are like, oh, yes, I don't know how I do it. But you know, it's just my heart is there. And it's true. I don't know how I do all of the things I do with only 24 hours in a day. No, I don't think teachers make enough money for the amount of work that they put into. But do I think that our finances are really what we need to be commiserating over? No, it's not just teachers who like to fuel the conversation of teachers having nothing. I think everybody fuels that conversation that teachers have nothing and that they're not getting what they deserve. And so, you know, payday is always, hey, let's go to happy hour. We just got paid. And, oh, what do you have in your lunch today? Because we don't get paid till next Friday. And, oh, man, I'm running on 12 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, I've got $12 in my savings right now because one of my savings has $12 in it. Um, so I can be honest and say that. But it's, um, but, you know, at the end of the month, I'm eating what I was eating right after payday. 
I can still pay my bills and, uh, and not freak out about it. And, and that's, that's a weird silent secret that I keep, which shouldn't be something to be afraid of. Sorry. I was like, I want to, yes, I was a teacher in my previous life. And like everything you're saying is so true. And I was making the same salary as some of my previous coworkers. And I never lived paycheck to paycheck. I in fact had 18 months worth of expenses in a buffer account. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and then as soon as somebody found that out, it was like, well, how'd you save all that money? And in my head, I'm like, mm, you know, I could think of all the practical ways I did that, right? And, and the whole idea of being a martyr to your job, I'm thinking starving artist mentality, all of those things coming up. Like I used to be one of those, I'm going to swear, I'm going to say douchebags. I was one of those douchebags that was like, you're selling out, man, don't sell out. Back when I was doing my visual arts degree. And now I'm thinking back to in my 20s when I used to say this stuff, I'm like, that's not true. Money is is you need money for survival, right? There there comes a point when you have more than you need, and that's great. I, I'm just wondering why we are using money as a way to separate ourselves, and but complaining about it is a way to come together. And I suppose complaining in general is a way where we can find that common ground. I don't know. I don't know what's the answer to that. You know. And it's interesting because some, you know, I'm thinking of how some people might respond to this and say, oh, no, I mean, I'm sure you have all the problems, Megan. Like, you know, of course, what are you complaining about? But it's really interesting for me to hear how you have to not be someone who you are or you feel that you can't because then you will be excluded from these conversations or these commiserations or things that we kind of take for granted as just things we can bitch about with our friends because mm -hmm. that's what you do mm -hmm. in it's kind of these unspoken rules of society and so if you know, I don't know what it's like to not fit into that narrative yeah I don't know what it's like to be on the outside and have lots of money and there are definitely benefits to having a shit ton of money I would imagine there are some good things that come with it oh absolutely I think the question of what do I have to complain about is a valid question for people who maybe don't understand my situation. Just like I could look at any other person who has problems and say, why do you see that as a problem? You know, because I think it's all a matter of perception. You know, I, I don't have to commit. I don't commiserate authentically about where my next meal is coming from or which bill to choose to pay every month or wow, you know, I'm three weeks behind on my mortgage now. And these are all things that I hear about all of the time. And I, can do my best to empathize and say, yeah, you know, like I feel you, but I don't know what that, what that feels like. But I know that one of the issues that money has brought me is that I always have to watch my back with the people that I meet and the people that I invite into my life. Because very, very commonly, one thing that does happen is in relationships, complacency happens where people are like, eh, I don't really need to work very hard anymore because Megan will pay the bill or they start using you. I've had people steal things from me that were in my trusted circle of friends. I had an ex-in-law steal from me. And so these are all things that maybe wouldn't come if I didn't have money, but were very real problems for me. And you know, in this last year, I've had a whole lot of changes happen in my life. So I, um, I'm like the proud mama of two toddlers. Uh, I was married Last, this time last year, I was filing for divorce from my now ex-husband. And, and I think with that came a whole, a whole new set of real life problems that 
put me into a group of people where you can commiserate to an extent because being a single working mom is really freaking hard, um, whether you have $10 million or $10. But I remember when um, we'd just gotten back from winter vacation, at the time I was teaching part-time at a bilingual elementary school. I was in a resource room there. And my ex, one of the many reasons we divorced was that he was an alcoholic and an addict. He was stealing money from me to feed these habits. And I'd had enough and I said, we can't do this anymore. But when I re- when I kicked him out of the house and I was going through all of this emotional turmoil, I went to my supervisor and kind of just word vomited everything that was happening in my life. And when uh, a person in the education field sees now single working part-time mother of two, they're like, oh, well, that's not a livable wage. And without asking any more questions, offered me a full-time job that wasn't in existence so that I could pay the bills because she knew what the struggle was like to be a single working mom. And then the, in, the news got around and I was getting these gift cards to, to Fred Meyer and Safeway and they were pooling cash together and making meals for me. And all of this, like this tribe of women that I worked with, like were rallying around me because at the time that's what I needed. And that's what they perceived I was going to be my greatest need was money because until you're divorced, you don't get the child support. And that was like a horrible, sickening feeling. And I spent a lot of time in therapy for that. And I tried not to accept it. I was like, no, I don't need it. It's fine. I've got it under control. No, no, no. We know you're going to need this money. Times are going to get hard. Diapers are expensive. And I was like, yeah, but I have a diaper service, you know, thinking in my head. And, and, and I don't need this. But then my therapist was like, but take it because their hearts are opening to you. And when a tribe's person is hurt, your family rallies. And, and so I accepted it graciously. And I think it made them feel welcomed and wanted and needed. And I felt validated as a human. And then there's that little part of me that was like, wow, I really, I really convinced them that I am one of them. But I was one of them, just maybe not monetarily. But, you know, I think... Like money aside, because that was a really uncomfortable thing for me. It was also, I'm sorry, this is like really uncomfortable for me to be talking about. So, and I'm sitting in a school telling the story about me being rich. So that's kind of weird. But I think I just, um, I never fully agreed that, that I deserved the, the shows of goodwill that my, my colleagues bestowed upon me because I still felt like I had some weird secret and it shouldn't be a secret because people who don't have money tend not to keep it a secret and people who have an exorbitant amount of money tend not to keep it a secret. So why do I feel like I need to keep it a secret? And that was kind of my, my journey of self-discovery, I guess, was prompted by a bunch of gift cards given to me by elementary school teachers (laughs) because, um, because I didn't like that I felt guilt over something I maybe didn't need to be guilty for. Wow. Because guilt implies you did something wrong. Yes. And you have done nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I'm like at a loss for words, but that was an incredibly beautiful story. And Thank you. It is. I was just going to say, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Right, so you put it a little bit more eloquently than I did. Garrett said that the same two words about my story in the last episode. So I think it's going to be a common theme that Garrett will probably say holy shit in every single episode. That'll be your new catchphrase. Yeah, that'll be his new catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, thank you for sharing that. Mm. It's 
it's something I've never had to experience. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting from that specific perspective, but that's just general outsiderness. And I think there's such this stigma around money in general, and it's just something that is an easy way for people to segment themselves, divide in a certain way. Mm -hmm. The whole reason we do this podcast and we wanted to start it is just to have conversations and to get an understanding of what it's like for different people in different places who have different experiences around money. And so just to hear that dynamic and what you go through, I, I knew some of this going on for you just in the little space that you shared with me, but just how it is so defining in every action that you take and every relationship that you have. Mm-hmm. That to me is, I think, what's the most mind blowing about it. It's almost like if you're gay. Right? There's almost like you have to keep this. If you're LGBTQ and you haven't told anyone, you're carrying around this secret. If you don't feel comfortable sharing, I don't know if this is my space to use this analogy, but that's just kind of what came to mind for me. It's like this albatross that you're worried someone is going to find out. Mm-hmm. And then what the hell happens next? You're outed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it also speaks to the idea of like, does one thing define who you are as a person, right? Does does your money define who you are as a person? Does your sexuality define who you are? Only define who you are as a person? You know, does your race only define who you are? We have so many complicated identities all wrapped into one person. In that situation where your coworkers are giving you things, money just gives you choices. Mm-hmm. Money gives you the freedom to make decisions how you want. And so in that case, when I was hearing you share that, I think your therapist is right. In that moment, they want to give. Your peers want to catch you and help build you up and you can allow that to happen. And then because you have the means, you can choose what you want to do with those gifts that you're given. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you can say, I have the means to, I can give these to other people who need it. I can choose to then go and give this in the same way that I just received, because this isn't where my need is. Right? I have other, I have emotional needs. I have all of these other needs, but money isn't it. And so I have the flexibility to then give and share and just transfer that energy, which was given to me as money in some other way to other people who need it. At the time when it is appropriate, you can share if you want to, and if it is right, what your financial situation is and why you made those decisions. Yep. What we touched on a little bit in the first episode is money is neither good or bad. It simply is. And it's what you choose to do with it, how you decide to use it. And it just gives you opportunities And so just hearing that story, you should not feel guilty. You should not feel shame. Well, in an ideal world, right? Society does kind of put that on you. You know, being in in the teaching field that that I'm in, um, and and I work as a high school special education teacher. So my day is full of being an abled human, working with disabled teens to teach them what it means to be an agent in the world that we live in and how to look at all of their abilities and, and see those as strengths um, and use those to kind of propel them forward. And in a lot of my professional development, I spent a lot of time studying privilege in all of its domains, whether it's white privilege, ability privilege, if it's financial privilege, um, and how it impacts our education system, because, you know, PD is for your job, but also just kind of looking at it, how it impacts us as human beings as we interact with one another. 
And I fit sort of into most of the privileged categories, aside from being a male. Um, But, you know, I'm a white passing, cisgender, wealthy individual. So a lot of the struggles that a lot of the world have not have had to face are, are ones that I've not really dealt with on a personal level, but I watch happen all of the time. And I think like with any other kind of privilege, it is what you do with it. And, and what I've kind of learned, especially in this last year, while I'm raising too many humans to be the most rad big humans they possibly can be is understanding what your privilege can provide to others. And, you know, they will be kids who will have trust funds. They will be kids who will never have to pay for whatever school they want to go to or any degree they want to have. They'll pay, they will be able to pay cash for their first house if they want. And that's kind of up to them, but they will also know the importance of fighting for individuals who don't have those abilities. They will know what my classroom looks like and what providing dignity to all humans looks like. And they will respect all people. And I think that value system is independent of a dollar amount, but can be enlarged because of a dollar amount. Because I don't have to make a lot of sacrifices that might impact the day-to-day of my family, but I will make sacrifices and show my children what hard work looks like and show my children what philanthropy looks like and what teaching all humans as humans, treating them the way they would like to be treated. I like to I learned that was called the platinum rule, treat others how they would like to be treated. And then I think that kind of supersedes any sort of crap that comes along with the stereotype of a wealthy person. Because if you use your wealth for good and you share it, because that's what you do as a human is you share what goods you've got with others to make other people's lives better and to make your own life better too then I don't think you're falling into that black hole of being that rich trust fund child who has had a silver spoon in their mouths the entire lives and, um, and don't understand that there is a world outside of them. And I think that's, a, that's something that's become unbelievably important um, since having children, but I think also since I'm kind of tired of grappling with almost stigmatizing myself for being wealthy, why not use it in a way that enriches my life and the lives of others? There's no point. Yes, girlfriends, preach it. <laughs> preach it. <laughs> I just, you know what, Garrett, we're, we're ending it here because positive that Garrett has no words, even though he wants to say those too little. Pretty sure he does. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, we really just appreciate the time that you've taken to to talk with us today. Um, and the emotional vulnerability yes, of just throwing I, that I all out there. I am tearing up, girl. Like, seriously. And it's not because I'm PMSing. I, I I'm am just tearing here, I'm like, up. Shit, don't see me crying on Zoom. Yeah. Don't see me crying on Zoom. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on here. And, um, you know, I told myself that 2018 was going to be my year of saying yes to things that terrify me if they're going to enrich my soul. And so when you asked me to do this, this was definitely something that I wanted to do because, because if I could help one person, by telling my story, then I think I've done okay. I think you will. I think you'll help more than one person. So thank you so much. And that's it. We're (laughs) out. Thanks, Megan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beyond the Dollar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. And if you can think of one person who would connect with what we talked about today, we'd love if you shared this episode with them.